Well, Christian friends, if a new movie comes out and you have a desire to see that new movie in the theater, well, in today's world, you only have about five or six weeks to do so because the distribution schedule for today's movies is just so fast. But you know, it didn't always used to be this way. Back in the 1950s and 1960s, if a movie was really popular, if a movie was very well liked, well, you know, it wasn't uncommon back then for a, a movie to stay in the theaters for sometimes up to a year. Now, back in 1968, there was one particular movie that had a very, very long run in the United States. It was a fun movie. It was a family-friendly movie, very upbeat, and it was produced by Disney. It was called The Love Bug. It was a fun movie starring Dean Jones alongside this lovable Volkswagen bug named Herbie. Now, family, as we begin this morning, I want to highlight one of my favorite scenes from that movie. At the beginning of this film, we're introduced to this character whose name is Jim Douglas. And Jim Douglas is this down-on-his-luck professional race car driver. And he needs a car. At the beginning of the movie, as the credits are rolling, he crashes his car. Well, so he needs a new one. One day he's out walking through the streets of San Francisco when he stumbles upon this fancy European car showroom owned by this man whose name is Mr. Henry Thorndike. Well, Mr. Douglas starts swooning inside this dealership over this beautiful, yellow, exotic sports car. And that's when the owner, Mr. Thorndike, comes over and begins to schmooze him. And he's hoping to make a big sale. Well, as they have this conversation back and forth, Mr. Thorndike uh, offers Mr. Douglas this expensive glass of sherry wine and a nice little biscuit as they're talking. But then when Mr. Douglas comes out and says that He's only willing to spend about 75 or 80 bucks for just some cheap, honest transportation. Well, that's when Mr. Thorndike, this uppity man, he becomes so offended that he snatches the wine glass out of Mr. Douglas's hand and he pours the wine back into his bottle, closes up the cabinet and bids him good day. And of course, family, this is the event that ultimately leads Jim Douglas to meeting Herbie, the Volkswagen bug, and the rest of the movie, of course, goes on from there. Now, friends, the reason that I wanted to talk about that famous scene this morning is because I think it certainly resembles what happens to Christians. When Christians talk about their belief in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior for sinners. You see, friends, in today's world, people are more than happy to talk to you about spirituality. People are glad to talk to you today about spiritual things, although have a great little conversation with you about the benefits of faith or what their faith means to them or whatever kind of religion they practice or whatever church denomination they belong to. Ah, but the minute the conversation turns to Jesus Christ. That is when everything changes. As soon as you, as a faithful Christian, as soon as you start to articulate your belief in the Bible's message that Jesus Christ alone is the Son of God, 
that he is the only Savior, and that he is the one and only exclusive way that we can get to heaven, well, that is typically when that other person's friendliness, that is when their happy spirit evaporates just as quickly as Mr. Thorndike's did there on the showroom floor. Family, today in our ongoing series on the Apostles' Creed, you and I are going to talk today about the most distinctive trait that sets Christianity apart from every other faith, every other belief, every other religious tradition in this world. And that is our bold belief in God's Son, Jesus Christ. As the Creed describes Him, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Family, in today's pluralistic world, that is certainly not a popular sentiment. And yet, these affirmations that we're going to talk about today, about Jesus Christ, this really is the heart and the soul of biblical Christianity. In fact, I would say this to you, friends, it is not a stretch to say that everything in our faith rises and falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So friends, as we consider today the, the Apostles' Creed and the way it makes this opening statement about Jesus, what do all true Christians believe about Jesus? What are the four core truths about Jesus that are truly at the heart of biblical Christianity? Well, friends, that we, that's what we want to talk about today. Four core truths about Jesus Christ. Here's the first one, friends, if you're going to take some notes today. I want you to know this. Number one, Jesus is a true historical person. Number one, Jesus is a true historical person. Now, family, if you were to come over to my house, you would see up on my shelves, I've got quite a collection of books about George Washington. And of course, George Washington was not only our first president, but he's arguably one of the most beloved figures in all of American history. In my personal collection, I probably have 20 or more books about George Washington. Now, that might seem like a big number to you, but one historian whose name is Ron Chernow, he estimated that more than 900 books have already been written. Serious biographies out there on the life of George Washington. Now, family, of course, George Washington is a chief character in American history, but he is far surpassed by Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, who is arguably the most notable figure in all of world history. People have been writing books about Jesus for more than 2,000 years, and they only continue to be written. How many tens of thousands of books have been written about the person and the work and the miracles and the sermons and the teachings and the life and the death and the resurrection and the miracles of Jesus? These books are still being churned out by the hundreds every single year. Family, when the heart and soul of the Apostles' Creed puts this focus upon the person and work of Jesus, well, it does so with the very first real understanding that Jesus was a true person. 
Jesus was a real person. He lived and walked among us on this planet. He was here on the stage of human history. And the four Gospels, which we have here in the New Testament, those are the primary source material that tell us about who Jesus was, His life, His ministry, His teachings. And in many cases, what we have in the Gospels are, are eyewitness testimony. People who were right there with Jesus. They knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, who knew Jesus personally. But you know what? It wasn't only, it wasn't only Peter or Matthew or John who knew about Jesus and who wrote about him. You know, during the first century, there was a secular historian. His name was Josephus. And he actually wrote a history book on the history of the Jewish people. And in that particular secular history book, Josephus, this secular historian, makes a few comments about Jesus of Nazareth. So I want you to look in your sermon notes this morning there, look in your bulletin, and I want you to see these words as I've given them to you. These are the words of a first century historian named Josephus. He wrote this about Jesus. Quote, About this time lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was the achiever of extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When he was indicted by the principal men among us and Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so. For he appeared to them on the third day, restored to life, as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Now, family, you need to know something here. Scholars today, even scholars today in the 21st century, have a little debate going amongst themselves as to what extent did Joseph, or excuse me, Josephus, to what extent did Josephus really believe or understand that Jesus was the Messiah? How could Josephus remain a secular Jew and accepted by his fellow society if he claimed or believed to be Jesus as a Messiah? That is a big debate still going on today. But that's not really relevant to our discussion this morning. The point that I'm making to you here, family, at this point, is that Jesus really did live on the stage of human history. He was a true historical figure. He was just as real as George Washington, just as real as Queen Elizabeth or Christopher Columbus. We know about Jesus that he was Jewish by birth. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in a little village called Nazareth. Jesus was the earthly son of Joseph and Mary. When Jesus walked this planet, people knew him by this name, Jesus bar Joseph. That's how they knew him, Jesus bar Joseph. The word bar means son of, Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus was trained as a carpenter, but he left that trade behind to become a traveling teacher. He was a traveling rabbi for about three years, during which time, Jesus gained a faithful fellowship of 12 disciples and many other followers. 
the town of Capernaum. Up near the Sea of Galilee was Jesus' kind of regional headquarters. It was his base of operations. And for three years of ministry, Jesus moved about doing teaching and miracles and so forth. But at the end of those three years of public ministry, Jesus was captured and he was crucified by the Roman authorities. Four Gospels. Four Gospels in the New Testament are the primary source material telling us about Jesus, what we need to know about Jesus. And family, from the first century to the 21st century, no other human being has had more influence than Jesus of Nazareth. That is why John, the Gospel writer, closes his Gospel with these amazing words. I think these words are mind-blowing. They're in your notes. John's Gospel ends with this statement. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, let's move on, okay? Let's consider a second truth, a second core truth that all Christians affirm about Jesus. Number two, Jesus is the promised Savior. Number two, Jesus is the promised Savior. Now, family, let's take our Bibles together and let's go to a passage of Scripture that is well known to us, children and adults alike, Luke chapter 2. Would you open your Bible to Luke chapter 2 with me? And I'd like to read verses 8 through 12. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, I'm going to read all the way down to verse 12. This is what Scripture says. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, friends, just before we comment here on these verses, I think it's worth pointing out that this particular gospel, the Gospel of Luke, was written by a highly respected man, a highly educated man. He was a first century physician. This man, Luke, was very talented. He was a talented writer, a researcher, and a historian. Maybe you did not know, but even secular authorities agree that one of the most trustworthy historians of antiquity is Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke is well-received, even amongst non-Christians, as a trustworthy writer and historian about first-century events. So, these verses that we just read, of course, many Americans undervalue those words. They seem so fluffy, like they should be on the inside of a Christmas card. But friends, what we just read from the pen of Dr. Luke is rock-solid, reliable history. So what does this passage tell us about Jesus? Well, on the night that Jesus was born, Scripture says an army of angels 
fill the night sky, announcing to the shepherds that at this moment in human history, something astounding is happening. Something truly world-shaking is taking place. Look at verse 11. There is born to you this day in the city of David, aha, next two words, a Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, friends, there have been many people down through the generations who would say that Jesus is only a historical figure. They say he was only a remarkable teacher or just a moral example or perhaps even a dynamic leader. But friends, I would assert to you today that the Christian position, the Christian position drawn from Scripture is that Jesus took on flesh Jesus became a human being with one specific purpose in mind, and that was to become our Savior. Our Savior. Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, I won't make you turn there, but you can flip over if you want. The angel comes to Mary and says that she's going to name this baby that's in her womb Jesus. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves Jesus' own name literally means Savior. Well, it's that word Savior that the angels were telling the shepherds. And not only that, they even used the word Christ. Christ. Now, you know, sometimes children or sometimes people who have not been uh, really exposed to church or the Bible, many people inadvertently think that Jesus' last name is Christ. Jesus Christ. They think Christ is perhaps his last name, but that's not correct. Christ is not a name. It's a title. It's a title in the same way that president is a title. President John F. Kennedy. That's a combination of ideas there. There's a name, but there's also a title. And that's this title, Christ. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. This is the word, the word Christos is the word that the New Testament writers used as they were bringing over or translating the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah. So friends, when you and I open the scriptures and we read this name, Jesus Christ, the Bible's telling us and declaring to all people and all Christians what the truth is that we believe is that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who came as the fulfillment from all of those prophecies that God had been giving throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And sure enough, family, what the angels announced, Jesus affirmed. Look in your notes. I gave you that famous section from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. Jesus said these words himself, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So friends, we're talking about Jesus being the Savior. He is the Christ. This is truth that was announced by the angels. This is the truth that was affirmed by Jesus himself. And then the early church comes about and the church then asserts that same truth through numerous sermons, numerous conversations, countless speeches, countless sermons and missionary endeavors 
throughout the known world. And so not only do all Christians affirm this core truth that Jesus is the Christ, He's the only Savior who can rescue us from our sins, well, the Bible also teaches this is the joyful truth that all Christians are now called to carry. We are called to carry that truth out into this world so that other people can also believe on Jesus as Savior. Look in your notes, I gave you 1 John 1.3, which says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So here's what we're saying. For the true Christian, not only does believing in Jesus bring us a sweet fellowship with Him, we also want to enjoy a wider and ever-expanding fellowship with even more people who are going to believe on Jesus as Savior as we share the truth about Jesus with them. So, if the person of Jesus, if the work of Jesus, if this is the heart and, and the, the soul of, of biblical Christianity, what are these core truths that we're affirming? Well, the first one is, Jesus is a true historical person. That's what the creed affirms, that's what the Bible affirms, that's what we affirm. And then secondly, Jesus is the promised Savior. Now, here's the third one, number three. Jesus is the sovereign Son of God. Number three, Jesus is the sovereign Son of God. Now, Christian friends, God has been so gracious to me. He's allowed me to be a father six times over. And most of you know Heather and I have five sons, and we have one daughter. Now, if you and I got together, if we were to get together and have a coffee or a Coke, and we were to have a little conversation, and the subject of one of my sons came up in that conversation, if, if we started to talk about one of my sons, you would have a basic understanding, wouldn't you, of that word? You would understand in reality what a son is all about, how a son comes to be biologically. You would understand what the word son entails. You would understand the earthly reality of that, the temporal reality of that. Maybe we're talking about my son Ethan or my son Seth or Carter. And you would understand that while they are my son here and now, you would also understand that there was a time when they didn't exist. They're here now, but there was a time that they weren't here. But friend, listen, when we start talking about Jesus Christ being the unique Son of God, we have to come to grips with the Bible's teaching that while Jesus did experience a physical birth, that was not His beginning. Scripture teaches that as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, has always existed in eternity past. In your notes, I gave you a great scripture from Colossians 1 that says this about Jesus the Son. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, uh, authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, some Christians get tripped up a little bit with that word firstborn. 
Firstborn, but that word means family first in rank. It means first in authority, first in position. It doesn't mean that Jesus was created. So this first text is a very powerful affirmation about Jesus, His eternal deity, His existence in eternity past as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. If you take your Bible with me, I want you to open over to John chapter 1. We're right here in the Gospels anyway, so just turn a few pages to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1 and verse 1. We read these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Family, here is an amazing gospel, the Gospel of John. And John decides to begin his gospel not with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. John decides not to start even with the conception of Jesus inside Mary's womb. No, John begins his biography about Jesus by going all the way back to eternity past, where John says that Jesus has always existed as the Word. So who was this eternal, self-existent Word? Well, when we get down to verses 14 and following, John, the Gospel writer, identifies the Word, the Word who was with God and the Word who is God. Verse 14 of this same chapter, John says, The Word is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one who displayed the glory of the Father, who was the only begotten of the Father. And then finally, you get down to verse 17, and then John uses the name Jesus. Now, friends, down through the ages, many people have struggled to understand the meaning of that word begotten. Begotten. You see it in John 1.14. You see it in John 3.16 as well. In some of the older translations, that word begotten. Many people struggle with that word because when we hear that word begotten, we typically think about physical birth. But what we need to understand is when the Bible describes Jesus as the only begotten, we have to understand what that meant to the ancient people. What did that mean to the Jews of Jesus' own day? What did that mean to those ancient Hebrews? Well, in their context, in their culture, to be begotten, the meaning of that was not so much about being biologically born as much as being begotten indicated a unique and close and intimate relationship. So how close was the relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son? Well, look in your notes. I gave you Matthew 3.17 and that time at Jesus' baptism where God actually speaks audibly from heaven. Remember this, at Jesus' baptism, God speaks His approval. And He says, after Jesus is baptized, God, God's own voice speaks down and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Friends, the Apostles' Creed makes this bold declaration that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son.
Friends, when we say that, we are affirming the Bible's testimony that Jesus is not merely a mortal man. He is so much more. No, Jesus is the God-man. He's the God-man. He's 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is the only person in the history of the universe who has ever had two natures in one person. 100% God, 100% man in one person. That was Jesus, the God-man. He was the very radiance of God Himself. And that's the truth that Jesus even taught while He was here. This is the truth that landed Jesus in such hot water with all the religious authorities of His day. In fact, I want you to look at that little great quote I gave you in your notes this morning from Dr. R.C. Sproul. R.C. wrote this, quote, "...to give worship to Christ..." if he is less than God, is to engage in heinous idolatry. If Jesus was only a creature, he deserved his ghastly death. Jesus wasn't killed because he told people to love each other, but precisely because he claimed the prerogatives of Godhood. That's right. Now, let's consider one more truth, shall we? One more truth. This is at the heart of the soul, the core of the Christian faith. What do we believe about Jesus? Number four, Jesus is the divine Lord. Jesus is the divine Lord. Now, friend, let me ask you a question here this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life when someone tried to pressure you to say something that you didn't want to say? Has there ever been a time that Someone tried to get you to agree to something or maybe even agree to do something that really went against the dictates of your conscience. I will never forget, friends, as long as I live, being in sixth grade at New Windsor Middle School, I will never forget the time that a substitute teacher tried to get me to agree that my favorite band was White Snake. This guy wasn't even the regular teacher. He was just the substitute. And whatever he was teaching on that day, the subject turned to music. And he says to the class, oh, all of you here, all of you listen to the radio, all of you like music. And then he turned to me. And he said, now what's your favorite band? It's probably White Snake, isn't it? Now some of you here are a little older, a little gray on top. You have no idea who White Snake is. You're going to have to go and Google it now when you get home today. White Snake. Jessica knows who White Snake is. All of you who listen to that 80s rock, you know who it is. Well, back in the day, I lived in a very rural neighborhood. We didn't have cable TV in my neighborhood. So, so we did not have MTV at my house. We didn't have VH1 at my house like all the other kids. But in addition to that, my parents were trying to be faithful Christians. Even if I had MTV, they wouldn't have let me watch it. They wouldn't have let me watch some of that stuff, especially the secular rock stuff, especially in the 80s, right? Where everything was just, you know, turned up to 10, and it was just, man, glam rock and just indulging in every kind of uh, hairspray and sin possible, right? So the teacher says to me, well, what band do you like? It's probably White Snake, right? I said, no, I don't like White Snake. I don't like White Snake. And you know what? He wouldn't let me off. He said, oh, come on, you know you like White Snake. I said, I don't like White Snake. And he, for five minutes, he just kept hammering me, hammering me. This teacher, he was incredulous. 
He would not let me off the hook. He wanted me to say, yes, I like white snake. Now, friends, let me tell you the truth about something. Back in ancient times, the first Christians were being forced to say something that they didn't want to say. Back in ancient times, Rome ruled the world. The Roman Empire ruled. And part of the way that people showed that they were faithful citizens of the Roman Empire was to recite what was called the loyalty oath. And this was something that all people in the Roman Empire were expected to say if they were good, faithful, patriotic citizens. They were expected to recite the loyalty oath, which goes like this. Kaiser Curios. Kaiser Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. You see, friends, back in the Roman Empire... The Roman Caesars had such a high view of themselves, they even believed themselves to be deity. And Roman emperors wanted themselves placed on the same level as all the other Greek and Roman gods. Now let me ask you, how do you think those early Christians felt about making such a pledge to a human being who was claiming to be God? They did not want to make such a loyalty oath. So during the era of the first century, the Christians projected their faith. They stated their loyalty by saying these words, Christos Curios. Christos Curios, meaning Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. The Christians would not ascribe lordship to a man who was pretending to be a god. The Christians said, no, the only one who we will affirm as Lord is Jesus Christ. Now look in your notes. I gave you a great scripture that drives this home. Philippians 2, verse 6 and following says this about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, look at this, the name, the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, look at those next two words, is Lord. What name? What name did God then ascribe upon Jesus? It's this name, Lord. Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's that key word, Lord has the idea of a ruler, a leader, a sovereign. For the Christian, the only true sovereign that we serve, the only true sovereign that we bow the knee to willingly is Jesus. Jesus Christ. Christos. Kyrios. Jesus alone is Lord of the universe. Look in your notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. Paul writes, For although... There may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, 
Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So friends, while the Apostles' Creed certainly acknowledges this factual statement about Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord, did you notice, friend, that the Apostles' Creed even goes a little step further when the Apostles' Creed says He is our Lord, our Lord. In other words, it's impossible. It's impossible for anyone to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ without personally submitting to His deity and His authority as Lord over all. Friend, I want to pause right now and ask you today, who is the Lord of your life? Who is the real Lord of your life? Who truly sits on the throne of your life? Who is it that really is calling the shots, setting the agenda, planning the day, and leading the way? I'm asking you, is it you? Are you the Lord over your life? Is it your own selfish heart that leads the way? Or is it Jesus Christ? Can you truly say today that you have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Friend, if God is speaking to your heart today about your soul's need, about your sin, about your guilt, about being separated from God, well, friend, come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Confess your sin to Him. Believe on Him as the Savior and receive Him as Lord of your life. To believe on Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior, and then to love Him, and to lean on Him, and to let Him be the Lord of your life. Friend, that is what it means to be a Christian. So if you've never trusted Christ, come to Him today. Don't go another day until you can join with all of us in the words of the Apostles' Creed, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Family, as we draw to a close now, I sure hope this message will be a, a great boost to your understanding about the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's a great reason why the majority of the Apostles' Creed focuses on Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did and where He is presently and, and what He will yet do in future days. You see, it's on the person and work of Jesus that Christianity stands or falls. This is why Jesus is at the heart of the Apostles' Creed. So friends, I hope as we've unpacked these truths today about Jesus, that He is a historical person, that He is the promised Savior, he is the sovereign Son of God. He is the divine Lord. So we've talked about these truths today, friend. I sure hope that, that your faith's been strengthened, and I hope your commitment has been renewed because these are the truths that the Bible reveals to us about Jesus. So family, as you launch out into a new week, I want you to go with assurance in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Go. Be bold. Be joyful, be confident as you speak the truth about Jesus to those who need to hear it. But friends, also, be prepared. Be prepared. Because just like Mr. Thorndike scowled and stormed away in that famous scene from Herbie the Lovebug, you need to be prepared. 
Because this pluralistic world does not want to hear the truth that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. But family, even though they will continue to reject it with gloom, Christians all across this globe will continue to receive this truth with gladness. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Thanks for listening. This preaching for a change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.